Hello, Ian. Well, good to see you. I've saw a lot of you over the winter. Good to see you again now. I was just trying to remember, Ian. When was the last time you walked off into the mist in Walsall after we'd finished our, um, or my chinwag with you? You'd ask me a question and I would answer each question for about an hour. Yes. <laughs> and on we would go. Can you remember exactly when that was? When, when was the last chat that we had? It was just that lockdown. Was... I would say the end of February. End of February? Okay. Um, was that this... This year, February this year. Yeah. God, where's the time gone? Anyway, mm. I want to ask you, I first started asking if I could help work on your life story with you something like 13 years ago. And I don't think that you didn't want to do it, you weren't interested, it wasn't a thing that you were ever going to do really, you seemed quite opposed to it. So why did you suddenly, as you got through your mid to late 60s, decide that you really had to write your life story? What, what made you want to do it? Well, <clears throat> I think the longer you live, usually the more you have to say, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I just felt that for an autobiography like this, which is, which is generally, you only have one go. You only have one go at doing something like this. So... Um, I waited until the appropriate time. I've been saying it's like getting me metal miles under your bullet belt, your heavy metal bullet belt. And um, so I waited and waited, but I, I gotta tell you, Ian, that you were the tipping point for me to make this decision to, to, to do this book. Because when I found out about your background, we should tell everybody that you, Ian Gittins is from my neck of the woods. We practically walked the, the same streets together. So that was that made me very very comfortable, and um, <clears throat> I think that's probably part of how we were able to really strip everything down to the bare metal skeleton and get all the information out that we needed to. Yeah. Also, Rob, I've done I've ghostwritten a few books before, and interviews normally about fourteen, fifteen, maybe sixteen hours. We talked for I think about forty-five. <laughs> Is it 45? It felt like uh, a thousand, a thousand hours. But I, I tell you, I had the best time of my life. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I never, I really look forward to seeing you every day, Ian, wherever that might have been, either here in Phoenix or back at the, at the uh, house in Walsall. What came across in that 40 hours, 45 hours, is that you really wanted to give the whole story, the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There was yeah. no at all, was there? No, and... Um, we had a lot of stuff left over, didn't we, Ian? Um, yeah. Use a lot of stuff we didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah, and because I'd never because I'd never made a book like this before, I, I was very um, <laughs> stubborn, <laughs> Rob. Stubborn Halford, uh, and you and I were sending emails back, going, "Headline has to put this in. Hashtag has to put this in." And then, and then I fully understood the the value of great editing mm. because when i heard we can't put this bit in we got to cut that bit out for various reasons and now i understand that when you make a book like this or any book i suppose editing is crucial it's not making a record you don't need 24 bars of vocals you know it's it's far better if you've got 12 bars of vocals it's the same kind of essence however as i've been saying we have a ton of stuff left over don't we in that we've got to figure out what to do with eventually. Yeah, I think, I think we'll find something. 
But after all that work that you put in, all the hours you gave me, when you had the, the finished book in your hand for me, how did you feel? How did you feel holding it and looking at it? I felt the same way that I did when I got the first ever Judas Priest record, Rockerola, when the postman came to 38 Kelvin Road, knocked on the door. I thought you, I thought you were disappointed by that. <laughs> I opened the door. Are you Mr. Robert Hilford? Yes. I have a package for you here, sir. Thank you, sign here. And it was one copy of Rockerola. We all had one copy each of Rockerola. And it's a thrill. It's an absolute thrill because you put all the time and energy into making a book like this. And then when they eventually <clears throat> get into your hands and, you, and you, you, you know, you've got it there in front of you, then you know it's real. And then, you know, the next step is to send it out to the world. Mm. Yeah. And when you got, when you got the finished book and, you, and you're flicking through it and remembering our conversations, remembering your life, really, was there anything that you thought you shouldn't have put in? Were there any regrets that you included anything at all? Well, two things. I hate the word regret. I think it's a very brittle, negative, cold word. I think it should be struck from the English language. Mm. I like, I like uh, reflect. I will always take reflect over regret. And what I mean by that is we've all made poor choices in our lives just because we're human. And so um, to reflect on things that you've done that in my case got me into trouble um, is of great value because then you never do it again. That's the whole, that's the whole reason about, um, you know, reflection. Um, with regards to some of the things um, after the after all this event, um, kind of reflecting, yeah, there, there were there were some there were some moments, particularly family moments, mm. and um, that kind of pondered through my mind on on many occasions. In after we'd had a day and we talked about this and that event, and particularly with my with my beautiful family, and. Um, you know, the, the, there were times when I wanted to email you and say, Ian, I'm, I'm having second thoughts about this moment or that moment with the family. But I thought, no, I can't do that. Because here's the thing. Since I've been clean and sober, I've been a really truthful, honest person. That when, when you're clean and sober, you stop lying. You stop, like, telling fibs and making up stories and creating innuendo. And I think that as a child, particularly, there are significant events in your life good and sometimes not so good that happen to you as a person and you carry them with you for the rest of your life it's not emotional baggage it's just there you know it's stuff we've all been through these types of scenarios and some of those moments um make you into the person that you are you know i, I talk about my my difficulty even today in having confrontations with people. I'd, I'd love to sit down and have a discussion, but when it turns into a confrontation, I, I have great difficulty with that. And that's kind of residual stuff that's left over from my childhood. So these are, these are, are things that you have to try and find peace and balance with. And when you read those moments throughout the, the, the book, everything seems to make sense in, the character that I turned out to be. 
one interesting thing, Rob, um, as you worked on this book, the introduction of the book, um, it's not a spoiler for at the start, the introduction of the book is you walking from your home as a kid to school um, and going across the canal, across, across the cut. Um, across the cut bar. Passing a big um, smelting factory where the fumes and the pollution belching out were that bad that you'd be coughing and sputtering. And in your head were the words, I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. and that section to the book is going to be called, I can't breathe. Right until at the end, the whole George Floyd thing happened in America, and suddenly I can't breathe became a real, a real sort of charged phrase, and Black Lives Matter were using it. And it, would yes. been, it wouldn't have worked in the book for that very good reason. And um, yes. I'm suffocating. Mm -hmm. uh, but that idea of you, that you couldn't breathe and, and that you were suffocating, that went through your life, didn't it? Because as you did the interviews and as you talked to me, I realised how much of your life was dominated by the feeling of um, being compressed and restricted by, by your sexuality and the fact you couldn't come out about it, the fact you were living a life for so many years. Would you say, agree that's, that's the major theme of the book in many ways? Uh, well, first, firstly, firstly, black lives do matter. And um, I think we, we changed the title respectfully so, we did the right thing, uh, yeah. rather that part in the book. But, and, but I, actually, I think, I think I'm suffocating is even, is even more um, to the point, you know, in terms of the angst yeah. uh, of not just, I can't breathe because I'm breathing in the toxic fumes, because we had no health and safety in those days, did we? And, and I would walk to, to Richard C. Thomas School across the bridge, across the cut, and I'd be breathing in the fumes. You know, I've always said that before the first notes of heavy metal were made, I was breathing it in, like the grit and the toxic fumes and the poison from those factories. And then sitting at school and the desk clunking up and down because of the steam hammers next door. So that's, um, that's a remarkable kind of parallel that, that, that runs with, with my music. But um, as far as the suffocating, yeah, particularly with, with the, the, the struggle that most people go through, particularly younger people, of, of oh, I'm not the same as everybody else which is ridiculous because all this thing about boxing and labels is ridiculous, but that's how we grow up, you know? And then that whole, that whole challenge of trying to find some peace um, in my sexuality, uh, particularly in my early teenage, teenage years, when you start to think a bit more lucidly about everything in life, um, became very, uh, very important and it was suffocating to a great extent. You told me an amazing story about how when you were, when you were just pretty starting to break the states and getting big in America, but you were obviously firmly in the closet. The band members kind of, you think, always knew you were gay, but never talked about it, never discussed it. It wasn't an issue at any point. But you had tour America with Judas Priest and you had this book tucked in your, in your back pocket called Bob Dunman's Address Book. Can you tell us about Bob Dunman's Address Book? <laughs> well, a couple of things. I love my band. We love each other in Priest no matter how we've changed in Priest, there's always been a love and mutual respect. We're a very private band, you know, but um, I understood the need to, to stay firmly in the closet just because of the times as they were then, um, there was a, an enormous amount of pushback towards gay people, particularly through the 70s and the 80s when the, when the horrible, horrible HIV AIDS epidemic um, struck um, around the world which we know it's for everybody that that horrible disease is not exclusive to one group of people, but we got the brunt of the, the pushback. So, um, 
because I was firmly in my little leather studied closet, the, the only way I could make contact with what was going on in, in various parts of America was this great little Bob Damron's guide. It was a, it was a book that contained every bar, every club, every place where gay people could meet up. Uh, and, and I used to like, you know, we'd be going into Cincinnati and I'd look at the Cincinnati, the blah, blah, bar on 4th and 5th Street, whatever. And, and the, the point of thing is, <laughs> I never got to go to these places. You say beautifully in the book, Ian, that, you know, it's, it, on, on some instances, I would walk past a, a bar and I'd press my face against the window <laughs> like a little Dickensian street urchin. Oh, let me in, let me in. <laughs> I don't go in because of the fear that, oh, my God, Halford's in the gay bar. What does this mean? Um, and this is a thing about protecting everybody but yourself when you're dealing with that kind of identity uh, crisis, if you will, as a, as a person before you come out of the, of the closet. Because your big fear, wasn't it? Your big fear was always that if you did come out, it would break up the band because yeah. the band would want nothing to do with you anymore. Well, yeah, and I don't think that was too far a, a, a reach because um, it was just a tremendously difficult uh, thing to consider that he, he was this very <laughs> ultra-macho alpha male band with a similar kind of audience. Um, of course, now music is heavy metal music. Well, it did from the start. It embraced everybody, our heavy metal community. But when it when it kicked off, um, it was basically that that kind of experience. Now it's across the board, as it always should be. Um, but there, there was a there was a, tr a great fear, you know, not only from from me, but from uh, the label, from from management. They were concerned, and you know, obviously, I was concerned because I love this band more than anything in the world when it comes to music. So again, you know. As, as, as miffed as I was to be, dumped, you hadn't better go to that bar, blah, 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 blah. Um, I understood that, um, that there was, uh, there was some um, concern. Yeah. And yet, uh, as you say in the closet, as, as your angst and frustration got stronger as the years went by, you did take risks. And you, I, I learned some things from you doing this book, Rob. Um, <laughs> what tappers, the, sh the wheel tappers and What's that, what's that club called? The Shunters and Wheel Tappers Club, whatever it's called. We're the Foot Tappers Club. <laughs> I learned foot tapping in, in Texan, in Texan. Um, and you tell me one of the most extraordinary stories I've ever heard about you doing some foot tapping and uh, cruising in a, in a Texas toilet and having an unexpected encounter. Yeah. It was after a pre-show. We did the gig. We were off in the night doing the overnighters. God, I hate overnighters. I, I won't do them anymore because I can't. I'm, you know, we talk about my insomnia in the book. I would never do another overnighter. But uh, we'd done a show in Texas, and um, Texas is, oh, God, you can get about 20 UKs in Texas just to show you how big it is. We were off during the night, and the first thing you usually do when you leave the venue is you stop at a truck stop to fill up. And that became my little um, uh, moment for my... Uh, hopeful little Trieste. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I went into this truck stop and, you know, sitting down and then somebody comes into the stall, man. Somebody comes into the stall next to my stall and uh, sitting down and this foot starts tapping and that's the gay sign. 
the gay side, the foot tapping. So I had a tap, he had a tap, we had tapped feet. And then we, we got the business done pretty quickly because you have to be efficient. The guys are efficient. And uh, we got the business done. And there's a, there's a kind of a um, diplomacy when that happens. One of you leaves, you know, washes your hands at the sink uh, and, and then takes off. Well, in this case, we both went in up to the sink at the same time. And this guy was dressed head to toe in priest regalia because he'd just been to see us at the show we'd done. So I'm washing my hands and at the corner of my eye, oh my God, you know, washing my hands. And then he's, he's washing his hands and then he looks at me and I know I look at him and his jaw drops for the second time. And um, <laughs> I go, all right, mate, see you next tour. And off I go into the night. <laughs> and this is just one of many Ian Gittings anecdotes you confess. Um, but of course, I mean, not at all comical or funny side of things was that the sexual frustration and the alcoholism that kicked in by then and the drug abuse a lot of coke you're doing uh, led you to try and take your own life at the start of 1986. Um, That's a very harrowing thing to talk about and to, and to read about. Did you, when, when you read this back in the book, when you told me about it and then you read it back, were you quite, did you find it quite moving? Yeah, it was, it was difficult. Uh, I tell you, Ian, especially when I did the audio for the book, um, a headline, Shed asked me to consider using my voice to, to tell the story of Confess. And at first I was a little bit, mm, maybe we should get somebody that can do better than me. But then again, it's like, well, it's, it's, it always seems best when it comes from the author, from the person that you, you, know, you know is connected. And so I was, I was glad I did that. But when, when I came to those moments, uh, like the, the cry for help, as I call it, it, it was difficult. I had to kind of compose my, myself on more than one occasion, particularly when I lost Brad in Philadelphia. Um, so all of that really comes to the surface when you're reading it out loud, you know. But I think it was, uh, I think it was the best way to make the truest connection in the audio sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And bizarrely, really bizarrely, when you when you did finally come out at the age of 47, you did it on TV and you did it by mistake. <laughs> yeah. How did you do that? I mean, usually it's on this day, I'm going to stand there and there'll be a spotlight on me and there'll be a fanfare and a drum round. And he goes, I'm gay. <laughs> was nothing like that. There's nothing like that. I was on, I was at the MTV studios in, in New York and um, I was promoting the, the two record, uh, the record I did with uh, John Five and Bob Marlett produced. Trent Reznor produced, Ray Vogel from Skinny Puppy. We did some work in Los Angeles. I went up to Vancouver for a few weeks. And, um, and so I was there to promote that, that, um, that particular record. And I've, I've never been able to remember exactly what it was, the producer or whoever it was, uh, was asking me about blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, to be perfectly honest, speaking as a gay man, yada, yada, yada. And then I always remember I, there was a distinctive clatter because he dropped his clipboard. I don't know whether that was because he stumbled or he was like, oh, shock and awe, we've got an exclusive. But um, when I look back now at that incident and because it, was, it wasn't dramatic, because it was just a sincere part of the conversation, um, it got the job done in the public sense. You know, I, I, I never realized there was, was a 47. Yeah. Um, and so there it was. It was 
out into the world in more ways than one. Yeah. And the backlash that you'd always feared would come from Judas Priest fans and Metal World in general just never came. No, never came. And that was just, um, was it naivety on my part? I don't know. I, I maybe convinced myself that, uh, that I probably would never have the opportunity to step forward as a, as a gay metalhead. Well, maybe if you and, said it would have come 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier, there might have been backlash, but in 1998, it was a, a different world. Yeah, we'd moved on. We, we'd moved on somewhat. We've still got a long way to go. Don't get me started about equality um, <laughs> around the world. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I got all, this is before the internets, folks, just about when the beginnings of the internets and cell phones and mobile phones were happening. So I was getting handwritten letters being sent to the office here in Phoenix saying, oh, that was so great, Rob. And, you know, I'm a gay metalhead myself and now I don't feel so alone <clears throat> in that respect. And, um, you know, it was just a beautiful, a beautiful outpouring of love from everybody. And I thought, after, you know, after all this was coming in, I'm like, why didn't I do this earlier? Why didn't I do this sooner? But again, you know, it's all about communication, Ian. Now it's like instant communication, 24-7. There's so much information going on. It can be blinding. Um, but maybe if, maybe if we'd have had that then, um, you know, that, that, that whole experience of exchanging your ideas and your feelings and, and who you are and how you want to express yourself and send out the message would have been completely different. But it was beautiful, man. It was beautiful. And more than anything, it just reinforced what we've always said about the heavy metal community, which is that we're a, we're a, we embrace everybody. It's unconditional love. It doesn't matter, you know, how much money you've got, what kind of house you live in, your car, your drive, you know, your color of your skin, your, your religion, whatever. It, not, none of that is, is, is relevant in heavy metal music. So uh, it was a it was a great a great experience all around, yeah. But also, we should stress that the book isn't all about your sexuality. It's not. There's not. There's a lot of great Judas Priest stories in there. A lot of great Judas Priest history and anecdotes. Um, I was amazed when you talked about um, one of your first classic albums, British Steel, in 1980. How quickly it came together. You said you went into the studio, uh, Tittenhurst Park, uh, with absolutely nothing, and 30 years, 30 days later there it was this fantastic album it was it was just a remarkable thing where you know you call, talk about the stars being aligned or whatever what's even more amazing about that Ian is that we were literally making an album a year at, at a certain point we would make an album and then we'd literally go from the studio into a little bit of production and then we'd be off around the world and then we'd finish and then we'd come back and make another record and that's how you had to work it in those days you really have to work it you know um uh but in this instance we went into this incredible building that again is just a, an in, full of full of amazing memories um with it with a bare bones of an of ideas for songs and the bulk of it came um as we wrote together uh, instant instantly spontaneously with tom tom allen at the helm and uh it's become a beloved classic in the in the rich history of, of Judas Priest's uh, music, yeah. And of course, Tittenhurst Park used to be the home of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And you, you and Glenn Tipton particularly, being big Beatles buffs, love that fact. You did one or two records around the house and found a few secrets, didn't you? 
yeah but we we'd got there and we were all divvying up the rooms you know and i i was i was trying to find the quietest room in the house which of course in the story of the book would say that was hardly the quietest the place which is where living after midnight was born but we, we'd all you know we dropped our bags now i'll have this room you have that room and uh, Glenn ended up in the room that used to belong to, to John and Yoko. So we come running down the stairs. Rob, you got to come and see this. you got to come and see this. Let's go in. I said, follow me, follow me. So we go up. Beautiful room. And he goes, come here. So we go into the, the bathroom, the toilet area. And there's these two loos, two toilets, right next door to each other with little brass name tag, tags behind them. And one says John and the other says Yoko. And we were just... You know, we were we were amazed that it was still there, and then you have this visual of John and Yoko sitting in the loo together, holding hands. <laughs> if that's not love in the truest sense, yeah. when you know, if you love, if you really love somebody, poo together. That's all I can say. I've always said that. Always said that. <laughs> also, of course, that album famously had breaking the law on it, which you did when you left Tittenhurst Park. You you nicked a souvenir that you took with you. Well, Ian, I've always said I loaned it. I loan. I borrowed it. I borrowed it. Yes, it, it went into safe hands. Um, I was doing my vocals in like this little teeny tiny room uh, because Tom Allen wanted a very, very uh, dry, uh, close type of vocal production, and the way you do that is to, you know, really put it into a confined airspace. So I'm in this little room. And we're on a break and Tom's, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. It was a long way to the studio part. So I'll, I'll just sit here and wait. And I'm looking around like, oh my God, I've got all these, there's like gold albums and silver, all Beatles presented to John Lennon for this, presented to, I'm like, come on, these are like on swivel sticks. And then I noticed this little perspex obelisk kind of thing. And I instantly knew what it was. Because if you ever watch the John Lennon Imagine video, where he's playing the white piano, that's the room where Glenn wrote Living After Midnight. Um, Yoko's walking behind him, opening up these white shutters, letting more light into the room. And then she goes past this table. And on this table are all these little perspex objects. And there is this little obelisk. And it was just there in the corner, covered in dust, knocked over. And my mind's like, I know what that is, you know. And I left it there for a few days, and then towards the end, I thought, I know I'm a bad boy, but I've got to take this. Because look, it's collecting dust, right? It might end up in the, in the skip. It might go in the tip, you know. And uh, so I, I borrowed it, and it's in a safe place now. And I've always said, Yoko, if you want it back, you know how to reach me. Get your peoples to reach my peoples, and I will reluctantly give it you back. One of the big questions, Rob, I think that's um, puzzled Judas Priest fans over the years was why in 1992 you quit the band. In this book, you give chapter and verse and explaining why it happened. And it was kind of a mistake, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess that's one word you could use, Ian. I mean, we, we go into detail, don't we, about the fact that we'd come off this fantastically successful Painkiller tour for the Painkiller album. But prior to that, we just got through that really grueling part of our lives as a band with the Reno trial, where those two beautiful boys who are massive Priest fans, they, they lost their lives, you know. So it was that. Um, it was the fact that we'd literally been nonstop for 20 years, practically, without a break. 
and everything we just came you know bawling to the surface and look it's it's not a new it's not unusual it's not unusual for lead singer i call this lsd do you know what lsd is in besides besides the the drug which i've never taken in my life and never intend to lsd i call it lead singer's disease Tell me that. <laughs> because a number of lead singers from a number of bands all kinds including heavy metal have wandered off you know and that's what i did um and we talk in the book about the the way the communication uh, broke down, especially amongst certain individuals that that created more of a more of a communication breakdown than there ever should have been. However, I was able to go off and fulfil a lot of important things for me as a musician, and the end result was, of course, that that gave me a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, satisfaction in finding my own abilities as a as a writer particularly as a producer and so on and so forth but it led me back to the band i love more than anything in the world and it's that classic case of you don't know what you've got till it's gone you can't see the wood for the trees and it it, it had great value for for the for the disruption that it caused um and the fact that i was away from the band for about 10 years, but which felt like 10 minutes, because when we agreed to get back together again, it was like everything evaporated. That's that's the magic of, of metal in, in Judas Priest. Yeah. Of course, in the band over the years, you've had many bizarre encounters. I know you've been telling a lot of people about meeting the Queen alongside Stella Black. You handcuffed yourself to Andy Warhol. You met Superman. One of my favourite stories, Rob, is uh, when you're in the in the fight band and you're touring with Metallica and a whole lot of support bands who included Candlebox at the time assigned to Madonna's label. And through your friendship with Candlebox, you get to meet Madonna. And it was quite an unusual encounter, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, you call me a Pop-Tart, don't you, Ian? <laughs> I always call you a Pop-Tart. <laughs> Anyway, she came to see one of the final shows in Miami and um, I'd heard that she was going to be there and I'm sitting in my little caravan, my father Ted caravan, waiting for, to, to, for, for our set to start uh, and waiting, you know, and then I see this massive entourage of blue, you know, gorilla type security guys and I see this little tiny head in the middle and I go, oh, that's Madonna, you know. So she's being escorted to her trailer uh, and about 10 minutes later, the lead guitar player from Candlebox, great band, he says, Madonna's here, do you want to come and say hello? I go, oh, go on then, I will, I'll come and say hello to Madonna. Yes, yeah, sure, why not? So they take me in to her trail and she had all the lights dimly down, you know, and she's sprawled out on this chaise lounge and she's got all these all these trinkets on and, a, you know, Chanel and and she's got all these girls and, and, and so forth, like a, around her feet. It's like a royal, like royalty, which she is. And the guitar player goes, Madonna, this is a, a good friend of ours. It's, it's Rob Halford from Judas, uh, from Judas Priest. He has a solo band called Fight in a Plane tonight. And she goes, oh, great. How, how are you doing, Rob? And he's very surreal. Oh, my God, that's Madonna. And I go, oh, great, you know, thanks very much. It's great to see you. Thanks for saying, letting me come say hi. And I love your music. I'm a massive fan, you know, the fanboy. And then she's looking at my tattoos. She goes, oh, I love your ink. I love your ink. Let me have a look. So I'm close, you know, just checking them out. And I've got a... I'd got like a, an Onslow vest on, string vest. <laughs> she goes, well, there's more tattoos there. Uh, 
They grow it, and I took my took my bet and my my thing, my top off. She said, "Oh my God, you're covered." And she goes, "How far down do they go?" And I got these shorts on, and I walk up to Madonna, and I'm starting to pull the shorts down, and she's getting closer and closer. And then, I, and then she goes, "How far down do they go?" And I go, "Well, I, I, I think I better stop there, you know, because it's almost meat and two veg time. So um, I think we'll stop. I think we'll stop." And she's, "Oh, that's probably a good idea." So I've always reflected on the fact that, um, you know, I met Madonna and uh, within five minutes, I was nearly waving my cock in her face. So rock and roll. I wonder if Madonna knows the phrase meat and two veg time. What's that? I wonder if Madonna knows the phrase meat and two veg time. I'm sure she does. She's an incredibly smart woman. God bless her, her Royal Highness. Another major theme of this book, um, is your lasting affection for our shared hometown of Warsaw. Mm-hmm. Warsaw's not the most beautiful place in the world. There's not much of a tourist trade going on there. Uh, and a lot, of fa- a lot of people who get as successful and famous as yourself leave their hometown not to be seen again. They move to London, move to New York, move to LA. You've always kept a place in Warsaw and spend a lot of time there each year. Why is that? What's your lasting affection for the place built on? Well, it is the most beautiful place in the world for me. It always will be it's my roots it's where i'm from you know these are my peoples my peeps mm-hmm. and um it's changed a lot over the years we talk about in the bus uh, i talk in the book about you know me and sue going with mom on on the trolley bus from Beachdale down to walsall and mm-hmm. park street in those days was just beautiful you know you had, the, you had some traffic and you had a lot of pedestrians and there was all these beautiful buildings with all these incredible variety of shops and stores and then even up the market and the old wool pack which was like this hundreds and hundreds of year old building it's all been torn down you know it's all been torn down it's lost the it's lost a lot of a lot of character but the soul and spirit of it hasn't changed and when i go home now you know when i do my walks down to morrison's plug um I just love to walk. I love to walk those streets. That's who I am, you know. I'm a, I'm, I'm a yam yam, and um, I, I'm glad that I haven't lost that because it's very easy for people in this profession, in show business, to, to kind of change a little bit. And I'm not, whatever, whatever. But that's never been, that's never been part of, of, uh, of, my, of my wants and needs as a person. And I, I love, I still love the place. I always look forward to coming home. I think a nice thing about and the trajectory it goes on is that it's full of angst and pain and despair at times. But at the end, it's really clear that you you're in a very happy, contented place nowadays. You seem you seem very grounded and like you you know who you are and you're happy with who you are. Yeah, I'm grateful for that, and I, I always reflect that. You know, my my being clean and sober now for is it 35 years, 36 years none of which has any real value because yesterday's gone. It's gone. It's never going to happen again. And I'm always looking forward to tomorrow because tomorrow isn't always an exciting opportunity. Um, but the fact that in, in these three decades, I think I, I've definitely um, changed as a person in finding out the value of what's important, what's important, you know, um so many things in life are not that important it's very if you keep try and keep your life as simple as possible it's a it's a more pleasant life it really is and and uh 
I learned that through my sobriety and the fact that I found the one uh, who's asleep at the moment uh, <laughs> is also part of, of being content and, 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 um, and happy and just uh, enjoying life more than ever. Actually, the, the way that you did find Thomas, the way you first hooked up and then you kind of rushed him too quick and he backed off and then you lost touch and then you got in touch again. I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's a fantastic love story, isn't it? it really it is. is. Yeah, it should be like one that, it should be on that lifetime channel. <laughs> what, they do, what do they call it? Hallmark. They call it Hallmark over here. It's a, it is, it's, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. And it, it started off in uh, a very poor way on my part. We were talking about in the book. It, I'm, when, when I reflect on that, I, I, I still feel oh, you were a bit of a dickhead, you know. Um, but it, it happened. It happened. So we let that go. But um, it is, it's an amazing story, especially the, the, that, that, that part where we'd, um, we, we, were, we were really making strong contact and then he vanished. And I thought, oh, he's, you know, been kicked to the curb. But he wasn't because he was fighting, you know, working in Somalia with the, the rest of his marine bodies and he couldn't, couldn't get a, a letter back to me. It was like the classic, these beautiful um love letters from war zones but he and, and he but he couldn't because he was under strict orders not to divulge his location and what he was doing and so on and so forth so that's a that's another kind of beautiful poignant part of the book well i think it's, it's to your huge credit that when you were a dickhead at the start as you say that you put it in that you told me you put it in the book because an awful lot of people wouldn't have you don't come out great in that story but you're quite happy to to share it. You, you confessed, you confessed that story. Oh yeah, well that's that's the that's what that's why, you know, when I said to you, Ian, I sent you an email, didn't I? I said I think I found the name for the book. I confess. And you straight away went, that's definitely the word for this book. Perfect. The way you're you know speaking out absolutely everything about your life. Uh, it, it makes perfect sense to use that word yeah but why should i avoid it why should i avoid all the all the crap <laughs> because we all go through crap you know who wants a smooth little life floating there's a song over here called row 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 you belt gently down the stream i've never done that i've been thrashing away at the oars you know i don't want that i want all the the you know the commotion and the waterfalls and everything because that's what makes life richer you find out more about yourself. You find out more about life when you're banging into things, you know. And I've always found that the more you bang into things, the stronger it generally makes you as a person because you're able to deal with these things that come in your way. The, the end of this book, the epilogue, is called Screaming My Tits Off Forever. You're going to be singing painkiller when you're 80. So you left Priest once by mistake and don't want to ever leave it again, you know, if you get a chance. Is that how you see the future, just doing Priest for as long as you can? Yeah, absolutely. We all feel that way. We all feel that way. We've been given this life by our glorious fans, 50 years, and um, you never want it to end. You never want it to end. I was thinking about, thinking about this the other day. There used to be, did you see that commercial on British TV? It was something, it was like a band was playing and they came off stage and they were taking the false teeth out and the, the, the leg and the wigs and all that. Don't let me get that far. <laughs> I've already 
dealt, dealt with the hair. <laughs> it's gone. I've put it around here now. But what I'm trying to say is that you never want it to end. And, and do we say in the book, I mean, one of the bands I really admire at this point is the Rolling Stones. Mm. I mean, they're still going out, you know. They're still going out. They don't need to go out, but they do it because it, it's this love of the music that they make, the love for each other in the band, but more importantly, the fans that give you give you the life, you know. And why would you want to turn that off? And equally, uh, in Judas Priest's case, you, there's all these new fans appearing over and over and over again, you know. I've said many times that when we're on the stage, you mean jamming and you see you know, really young people at the front head banging and you really wish you could have another 50 years because it's so powerful. It really makes you who you are as a, again, as a person uh, in your music or from your music. Talking about your bald head, as you were then, yeah. uh, one of my favourite stories in the book was the day that you, you just started shaving your head. You'd kind of given up on fighting the hair loss and shaved it. Mm. Uh, in the room, you started to put the JP... <laughs> <laughs> pen put a jp to two on your head for that night you spent an hour doing it but it didn't quite work out did it <laughs> our manager jim sylvia god bless him jim's featured in the book we never put the dildo story with jim did we and that never made the book did it i'd yeah, so like to go in confessions part two remember remember those um remember those soft porn comedy films confessions of a window cleaner confession you never watched them ian which is part of british pantomime tradition tradition anyway um confessions mark two uh yeah I, I, bald head you know i think i might put something on i'll put the jp emblem on i put jp on there spent an hour like with the early editions of a sharpie putting it on like that in the mirror and then Jim Sylvie says, you're on in five minutes. I'm just finishing this. I'll finish this up. And I walk out on stage and I notice some of the guys are looking at me while we're playing and performing. And then I realised that I put the JP on backwards because I was looking in the mirror <laughs> instead of JP. It was PJ. PJ Proby. Do you remember PJ Proby? Do you remember PJ Proby? With the ponytail and the, um, the black satin... God, memories, so many memories. We've got to do another book here before I forget everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, that, that, that's a classic Spinal Tap type story, isn't it? A band you've been compared to many times over, the, including by us in the book, uh, with, with, a, with a, the high turnover of drummers. And you met Spinal Tap, didn't you? You got to actually meet them. I did, I met, I met one of the guys, um, the blonde-haired guys that's is that st hobbins oh i never get these names right anyway he came to the recording session that my friend ronnie james dio put together for this incredible project called here and aid mm -hmm. and um so all these musicians came from all over the world to the studio in in los angeles and we're all doing our bits and then i see this guy come in and go oh, blah, so i'm so from spinal tap the great thing was he never went out of character he never left left his character. Yeah. Got this great kind of pseudo British voice. And he's coming and going, and I go up, I go, hey, I'm, I'm Roth from Judas Priest. Oh, Judas Priest, yeah. You would never be here without Tap. Tap leads all these bands, Spinal Tap. You should bow down before us. You know, we are the greatest heavy metal band. We invented heavy metal music, you know. This is the band that did, you know, like um, 
uh, the, the little Stonehenge, <laughs> the, the music and everything. And yeah, Glenn and I went to see that film in San Diego on a day off when it had been out for about a week. And we snuck into a, we were on two, we snuck into an, a, an afternoon matinee performance. There was a few people in there. We're sitting at the back and we were roaring. We thought it was the funniest thing ever. But there were some some young uh, metalheads at the front that got really irritated because they thought it was a, a film about a real band. And when they could see it was like satire, they got really angry. Oh, fuck this murder. Heavy metal. And they'd storm out of the, storm out of the movie theatre. But uh, that's a great microcosm of some of the moments that happened to us in music. And there's a better version, Bad News, Bad News. I don't know whether you've ever seen Bad News with Vim Fuego and everybody. I love that as much as I love Spinal Tap. Well, them play the marquee and get bottled off. Yeah, they played a fest. They played, they played uh, Monsters of Rock before it became download and they got bottled off there as well. Brilliant, brilliantly funny. Great, great, incredible actors. But this is David Dimbleby time now of questions from, from fans that are watching this. Uh, first question is from Kim. Says so you ride a motorcycle on stage. What kind of bike do you ride? It's still the original. Oh no, hang on a minute. We still have the original eighty-one uh, low rider, um, which was given to the band in I think it was ninety. Yeah, it was eighty-one. Harley Davidson um, gifted Judas Priest the band for the price, the mighty price of one dollar. Mm -hmm. Because we had to do a contract, and they said, "I'll oh, just give us a dollar." I'm like, "Oh yes, here's a, here's a dollar." So we've still got that bike. We used it forever. We have it in storage. And then um, more recently, we decided to do something really special and use a newer version of a Harley. And um, and so what you do now when you see Priest before the show is we put the bike out front, and what how, however much you you want to donate to the Glen Tipton Parkinson's Foundation. You can do that. And our beautiful fans have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars since we started to do that. And um, and all that goes to Glenn's uh, foundation. So I've still got the 81 uh, low rider. Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, Kim, because come back to that, Kim says, awesome. I work for Harley Davidson. Well, give me another one for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the sad thing is, the sad thing is, since I've had my back operation, which I think we talk about in the book, it's difficult now for me to sit on a bike for a, because of the, you know, the just the experience. I kind of miss that, but I still ride it out on stage, so that's you know that's a that's a good trade-off. Okay. There's a question from um, Edward Le Edward Labarc. Edward Labarc says, "Would you consider yourself a religious person or a spiritual person, and what is your view on God?" Um, yeah, my spirituality is very important to me. I think, again, we talk about it in the book, don't we, Ian? Uh, that's just part of the understanding that you that you work with when you're going through the, the clean and sober journey. Um, I'm not so much as... See, religion, religion, to my thinking, has been hijacked so many times by, you know, people that have had their own agenda. And that's not an attack. That's just the way I, I know something of religious history. So I prefer spirituality. And I do believe in this uh, image of what we call in um, being clean and sober, a higher power. And a higher power can be anything. Yeah. 
It can be the image of a person. It can be a tree. It can be a bird. It can be anything. It's a focus, really. It's a focus. And we have a couple of really um, powerful stories in the book, don't we, in about that side of spirit spirituality, and particularly about, you know, the afterlife to some extent with uh, Pearl in the nightclub in New York. And then my my visitation with the Virgin Mary in a, in a church in um, in Wolverhampton. So that that side of me is very important. It's extremely important to me, probably even more important as you get older <laughs> because you go, oh, the clock's ticking, you know? So it, uh, it just give, it brings me a lot of peace. It brings me so much, um, so much peace and balance, yeah. Question from Adrian Hextel. Adrian says, many bands have re-energized their careers with the introduction of new members. With Richie and Andy, what do they bring to the modern Judas Priest? Well, Richie's just been um, phenomenal. Um, he's an incredibly talented guitar player, songwriter, uh, stage performer. Um, Andy has been golden in, in stepping in like he did when, when uh, Glenn uh, wasn't able to do the work that he that he wants to do because Glenn is an absolute star perfectionist when it comes to playing the guitar and when he couldn't when he felt that he couldn't be at that level he very graciously um, suggested that um, he would move away from the big world tours and and do what he still does now which is a songwriter and a contributor still a very active full-time member of priest but Wood Andy, who produced Firepower and also is a, is a really uh, good guitar player, great guitar player, would you kind of stand in my metal boots as for the, for the, uh, the Firepower tour? So um, Andy is, is Andy on the guitar on, on that side of the stage, you know, and doing a, doing a fine job. So, you, you know, you have to make the adjustments. I've always said that, you know, Judas Priest is more than one person. It's a collection of all of us with the right... Um, with the right attitude and, and dedication and commitment and love and, and passion for the music that we play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Moya and Simon say, we all hope Glenn is in good spirits. How is Glenn? And also they ask, do you know how Ozzy is doing? Um, Glenn's doing great. I, I love it when people ask about Glenn. Uh, I always let Glenn know um, that people are, are, are asking uh, how he's doing. And he's, he's, you know, he's just carrying on. He's, he's just this remarkably strong person. And um, probably even now he's riffing with his studio back at home, because even though um, the challenges are there with Parkinson's, it's not stopping him. It's not stopping him. So he's, 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 he's cranking away, putting down ideas for, for the next Priest album. Um, I haven't spoken or seen Ozzy forever. I know I know as much about Ozzy as as we all do, but it, it's um, how can I how can I put this in words? But the fact that Ozzy's going through the similar conditions as Glenn, um, there's something really powerful about that because they're both sharing something that um, is incredibly important. Yeah. which is basically that if you if you are dealing with Parkinson's, you can still live an active life, mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, and we have this great song on on uh, on uh, firepower called no surrender and i was thinking about glenn and i was writing the lyrics for that song and that's kind of become his anthem uh, Miranda Touchstone asks, um, Rob, you were an adult when the first Pride flag was created in 1978. How did you feel and react to seeing it for the first time? It's very emotional. Flags are important, aren't they? Flags around the world. That's your identity. It's what you relate to. Um, there's the Union Jack. I'm from the UK. You know, there's the Stars and Stripes. There's all of these other beautiful flags around the world. They're, repre they're a representation of not only who you are, but everything about your country and so forth. So for us in the gay world to um, to have our own flag is, is important. It, 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 it validates a lot of things and it's a strong, powerful signal of identity. Yeah. Okay, uh, Chris Wrigley wants to know, Rob, who's your favorite vocalist from Ronnie James Dio, Freddie Mercury and Jeff Tate? Out of the three, they're all they're all brilliant. They're all brilliant. They they all they're all powerful, um, important people as vocalists for me. I've always maintained that, uh, to a great extent, Ronnie has always been an inspiration for me, just because of of the kind of music that we know him for. Um, and I still blast Ronnie before I go on stage each night with Priest, he just fires me up, he just psychs me up. I, I love him to death, his voice. Uh, equally, Freddie Mercury. Freddie's just, uh, to me, he was and still is and always will be the greatest front man in, in music for, for the, the music that, that Queen uh, made. What a great band, an amazing band, you know. A little bit like Priest, really. Like Priest can be a turbo lover and then the next minute we can be the painkiller. It's a bit like Queen. One minute they can be Olga Battle and the next minute they can be um, somebody to love, you know, uh, in, in the way that they just blew the doors off and said, we're not going to be blinkered in to one style and one approach. We're going to do everything. And that's what Priest has done. And, and Jeff, you know, uh, Jeff's a friend and uh, go way back with Queen Drake, he has a beautiful voice, re really charismatic voice. So they're all important to me. Talking about Freddie Mercury, I love the story in the book about you meeting him in the gay bar in Athens and then spotting him on his boat off, off Mykonos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just crazy. I, I never met Freddie in person. I would have loved to. I, 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 the closest I got to Freddie was about 100 feet away in an absolutely jam-packed little gay bar in Athens. We were all on our way to Mykonos and there wasn't a direct flight, so we had to spend the night in Athens. And I'm waving and he's waving and we just couldn't, you know, we couldn't meet up. But I did see him a couple of days later. I was lying on the beach at, um, I think it was Paradise, you know, the nudie beach. And uh, and then we are all going, oh, look, there's Freddie. And this big, big sailboat yacht went by covered in pink balloons. And it was Freddie and all of his lads partying and they kind of floated into the view and then floated out of the view. Typical Freddie dramatic entrance and exit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Shane, um, obviously when you're, when you're between your two stints in Judas Priest, you did both um, uh, Fight and the two band and then Halford as well. But Shane Borden wants to know, um, how do you look back on the two album, 
as it was a, a departure for you, but he says a great one. Well, thank you for saying that. And you know, it was a, it was a, an unusual album for who I'm for what I'm mostly known for. But that was that was one of the accomplishments that I went through while I was away from Priest and. Um, uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about that kind of songwriting. It was very, very interesting to me. I, I got a lot of uh, lot of good stuff out of that experience. And yeah, I mean, I haven't actually I haven't listened to that album for, for ages. I very rarely listen to the music that I make because I made it. I very rarely oh go and put in some priest because I'm living that songs those songs are in my head all the time. You know. I don't have to play. I don't have to play painkiller because I am the painkiller, you know that kind of thing. So, um, but you've you've given me a bit of a nudge there. Maybe I'll um, dust off a, a CD later and give two a spin. I was amazed when you told me that you'd never listened to two albums that you just Priest made without you to Jugulator and Demolition, and it wasn't through spite or no, but you couldn't better to listen to them. Oh, it's it's not that. It's just that it doesn't really. I don't. I don't. I don't really connect with that idea or experience. And that's absolutely no. Um, um, being mean or nasty to to those two records, I think it's just because I wasn't involved. Because I wasn't involved, I just don't feel that there's a a place for 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 me within that music. Having said that, you know, when fans have said, would you ever do a song from Demolition or Jugulator? Would you do it live? Yeah, why not? It is part of what Judas Priest is all about. So if, there are, if ever that opportunity came up and we needed that particular dynamic in a show, then I'd be a fool to ignore it. Okay. Uh, Anna Jelaine uh, wants to know, she says, I heard that when you first joined Judas Priest, you wanted to change the name of a band, but decided against it in the end. Is there any truth to that? And if so, can you remember any names you were considering? Yes, we wanted to call ourselves Monkey Wrench. <laughs> I'm glad that you that's, did. That's a joke. Or Lugnut. <laughs> or Spanner, the Spanners from Wersel. The Spanners from Wersel. Now, that's an urban myth. I, I, uh, I'm not. I'm not surprised that that's floating, floating around there. But it's a great name, Judas Priest, man. Yeah. Even now, you know, I pinch myself. I'm in a band called Judas Priest. It's just the greatest thing in the world. There are quite a few urban myths about you, aren't there, that we found doing this book. We managed to kind of put to bed, including that you used to manage a porn cinema. That was one story that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean sometimes it's fun to let those things filter through but now I looked after a little I looked after a little bookstore on Stafford Street in Walsall for a few days for a mate of mine who wanted to go on holiday to real or Blackpool or somewhere would you look after my shop I said yeah okay so <laughs> that was a great time you're sitting there waiting to see who would come through the door and I say do I say in the book you know you get one bloke coming in I go He's going for the tit mags. He's definitely going for the tit mags. And he would always go. I knew I'd like, you know, my, uh, not my gaydar, although my gaydar would go off. I'm great at gaydar. My gaydar is quite efficient. Marcel Zegitov wants to know, are Judas Priest going to continue to work with Andy Sneap in the studio and on stage? 
It looks like it, yeah. We had such a fantastic time, not only with Andy, but with uh, Tom Allen. You know, Tom Allen came back and was firmly embedded in um, in the Firepower production and Mike Exeter. So uh, what a great team and something really, really special happened from that. So why not, you know? Producers are very, very important for a band, even the, the bands that have been around the longest and uh, sometimes like the biggest band in the world for their particular music. They always rely on a producer because producers hear and see things that, 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 that you miss, you know, so they're, they're very important people. And Tom Alum is the world's poshest producer. You're not posh, but you uh, Yeah, the first time we ever met Tom, we worked together on, on Unleashed in the East. Oddly enough, at, at, at Lennon's old house. And uh, yeah, when we first met him, you know, we did, this ain't gonna work. <laughs> now I'd like, to, I'd like you to put that over there, if you would, please. And Robbo, he calls me Robbo. Robbo, stand over there and don't get so close to the mic. Uh, move back a little bit from the microphone and make sure you get the clarity and distinction in your voice. All right, Tom. So <laughs> he's... Uh, He's, he's, he's a star, he's a great producer. And Pablo Lebec would like to know, uh, have you had any acting opportunity in movies and would you accept more? Just that one time with Mickey Rourke when I did that Spun movie with Jonas Ackerland. Uh, is that full story in the book, Ian, about me getting food poisoning and everything? Yeah. And uh, it is in the book, okay. Um, that was great, I mean, you know, you see a lot of bands in the days of making videos. I mean, when I say those days, I mean like all those great videos of Priest made that was living after midnight, midnight, breaking the law especially, and um, locked in and turbo and painkiller. You're an extension of yourself, and I'm not going to say you're acting, but there's a there are things about performing for a camera, which is what actors do. You know, you 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 uh, you. You put yourself into this role of, of a performance and um, so that opportunity that I had to work with Mickey Rourke was just really really spectacular. I was a little bit nervous about meeting him because he's this incredibly powerful strong actor and like a lot of people that have been in in the entertainment world for, for a long time, sweetest guy you could ever wish to meet and we, we became friends. And he made you chicken soup? Made me chicken soup? because I had the worst food poisoning and it was coming out at both ends. <laughs> and he was, I'll make you some soup. I'll make you some chicken soup. Uh, okay, there's Mickey Rourke in the corner making me chicken soup. Uh, Jane Hallam uh, says, you're a great fan of Cat -a Day and I love your cat t-shirts. Do you have any cats living with you at the moment? I don't have any cats living with me in the moment. There's that great British cat commercial, isn't there, where the guy goes, I don't have my girl, I don't have any cats. My girlfriend loves cats. And then he shakes these treats <laughs> smothered with cats. I've got my cat t-shirts. I've got my cat t-shirts. And this, let me see if I can reach this. This here, my little kitty cat, Mr. Smokey. Okay. Who is now? Who is no longer with us? Is in kitty heaven with all the other kitty cats. Um, I had a beautiful cat for the longest time, and then when you when your pets move on, 
it's quite traumatic because you cats to some extent to your children you know especially in a family they become a part of uh, the family household and um uh it was difficult because when i when i had mr smokey um i had to put him in kitty jail which is where you put your pets when you go on when you go on holiday and um it, the time's not right yet but thomas always says when you're when you're 80 just that far away, and you're back in Warsaw. We're going to have a house full of cats, so that's something to look forward to. Okay. okay. Um, short point question. Carl Thomas. Carl Thomas asks, "Do you like being called the Metal God?" I love it. Yeah, and you called me that. You you started to call me that before I did, and it's just a wonderful term of endearment. You know, it's a, it's a really special. Um, nom de plume is that with the right word expression and, and i value it i value it so much that it's, it's trademarked you know i've always said there's only one elvis and there's only one metal god and that's me thank you very much <laughs> um a question from marco kubaribias sorry kubaribias uh, are there any plans to do a definitive judas priest documentary and I'd add to that, any plans to make a film of this book? Because this is very cinematic, this story we've got here. I've been asked on numerous occasions since I've been doing all this great promotion for Confess, if, if there was a biopic, and that's never even entered my mind, if there's a biopic, who would you like to play you? And I don't know where to start. I haven't got a clue. Maybe the fans can start putting stuff on my socials and let me know what their ideas are. But um, no, it, the, the, I've never even thought about that. As far as the priest um, documentary thing goes, uh, I think that's I think that's inevitably going to happen. Uh, preferably while we're still we're all still around and we can all we can all remember stuff. We might need to call you in, Ian, because you're great at drawing things out from the past. Okay. Um. Um, I apologise for this person in advance, it's quite a hard name to say, but Zavi Narumbad Kadirbax would like to say, I'm enjoying the book at the moment, and it definitely helps me to find some focus during these strange and mentally challenging times. How are you keeping yourself busy and sane during the corona crisis? Well, uh, thank you for asking, and um, I'm like everybody else. Uh, as we've said, uh, this would be, this should be kind of downtime for priests, and what I mean by that is, we did that massive uh, tour for firepower and then because the 50th anniversary was looming we should have been on the road right now celebrating uh, 50 years so we had to push that back all of my mates i've got all these mates in in metal and other kinds of music and we stay in touch and we're all we're all losing our minds because we want to be on stage we want to be with our fans again you know that's that's what we do that's what we're all about so we're looking forward to that. You've probably seen um, the shows have been um, rescheduled for 2021. For Priest, I think we start in, is it May or June next year? Please God, let the vaccine be working by then. Um, so that's the plan in, in that respect. And I'm doing like, like you guys, you know, um, I'm doing a lot of book reading. Got the new Ken Follett book and latest book, John, uh, book by John Pullman of Dark Materials. Got to start to get into those eventually. Um, I'm mad on the Umbrella Academy at the moment. That, that's just a really, really cool uh, series. 
Uh, just finished watching The Warrior Nun on Netflix, which is mad, and I love that. Sabrina the Teenage Week. I love all this camp stuff. I love all this, like, uh, superhero stuff as well, because it's just got... It's just got kind of a similar validation to heavy metal in the way that it's powerful and it overcomes evil and it's sending these positive motivational messages out. So I'm doing all that, you know, and uh, just put my Halloween uh, display up in the window. Uh, bought a big skeleton and I got a little mini strobe off Amazon Prime and, um, and a big pumpkin and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm finding things to occupy my mind. And that's, that's really important because very quickly, um, this, has been a, this has been a big strain on, on a lot of us mentally to not be able to live our lives how, how we normally lived our lives. So we're always urging each other to, to try and stay in touch the best we can. And you have the Zooming, you've got the WhatsApps, you've got the FaceTimes, you've got the texts. We really need to kind of look after each other because there's a lot of us that live alone and, and you know, I can't imagine how that must be. So uh, staying in touch is, is, is really important to, to try, and, try and get that kind of mental balance in your mind. Okay, going from the current day, uh, I'll give you a second now to cast your mind back 42 years. Okay. Do you remember playing Portsmouth Guildhall in 1978? Asks Nick Farr. If it's any help, Glenn Zamp conked out. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember. Yeah, I remember Portsmouth. We played there on the. Uh, I'm sure we went back there again on the. Um, the Epitaph tour. I'm sure we did. You, re you yeah, you remember those incidents because. Uh, well, it, it's it's live when you're with your fans, and when things break down, you you, you remember them. So I do remember that. Uh, I've, I've got lots of memories where we've had um, either spinal tap moments or, you know, even more powerful moments. You know, there was somewhere in Europe where there was a lot of civil unrest mm. and um, we didn't even know if we'd get to play the show because there was, it was like a military coup was, was happening. Uh, and we were playing a, a show which packed, packed all the metalheads were there just to forget about all the crap that was happening outside the doors. And the, 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 we kept having these power breakdowns because the, 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 the unrest was disrupting the power, you know, so that we'd be playing and all the power would go off and people would boo, you know, and then fire back up, yay, and then boo. So all of those things where you've had an incident effectively through a live performance, they're, they're all in there. That could be another book here. It will be, yeah. Okay, a question from Stuart Haig. It says, hey Rob, I love the book. Um, I remember reading that you used to love Coronation Street so much that you had people tape it and send it out to you when on tour. Is that true and do you still watch it? It is true and I do still watch it. I go all the way back to Ina Sharples and Minnie Caldwell and Anne and Jack from The Robber's Return. That's a national treasure. And it's an institution and uh, of course it, it's it's changed a lot now um i think there are still one or two of the original cast members which is glorious but are still yeah ken's still there um but uh, all those great pat phoenix all of these these great uh, um oh god what was the name with the the ducks on the wall hilda rogden hilda 
yeah. you know, unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, I love it. You can still, I still, uh, I still watch episodes when I can. Yeah, over here. Yeah. Okay. Um, just a request. Um, uh, Fritz Emslaw Oblak says her, her husband is Jonathan Ompad, and he's he's her Filipino gay husband. And he's 28 today. Can you wish him happy birthday, please? Yes, I wish you a very beautiful, extravagant, gay, happy, heavy metal birthday. I'm going mm -hmm. to blow out your candle. <sighs> <laughs> I think one of my favourite stories in the book, actually, because it's something that happened in your life really early, uh, maybe early 20s, I guess, was when you saw John Hurt on TV in... Um, uh, the Naked Civil Servant, the story of Quentin Crisp, that amazing guy who came out back in the 50s and had this awful life of being persecuted and beaten up and harassed on a daily basis. And you really admired the fact that he had this, this bravery to come out of that, in that time. And then years later, just after you came out, in fact, you met him in San Diego, and that's an amazing story. He, he was and still is a, a, gay, a gay icon in the culture of, of our who we are in the UK, and even more so, he, he went and lived in New York for most of his life later on, when he was much, much older. But he was a great um, inspiration because, yeah, I mean, he would dress however he wanted to dress. He would put his makeup on, he would wear these flamboyant clothes for the time, and he'd just go walking around the streets and he'd get beat up nearly every day. It didn't stop him, he'd go out, this is who I am. Uh, what a great performance John Hurt gave uh, on that show. It really moved me when I, when I watched it on British TV. Um, and then you fast forward um, to the time when I was living in San Diego and the gay pride uh, was happening. And I'm just walking around the site and then I see this little, little marquee and there's just a person sitting there by himself with some books. I go, oh my God, that's Quentin Crisp. That can't be Quentin. What's Quentin, Quentin Crisp? I'm losing my mind. And I walk over and it is Quentin Crisp sitting there by himself with the table and chair and by himself in this little tent thing with a pile of books. And I go in, I go, hello, Quentin. And oh, hello. You had a great voice. Hello, how are you? I said, oh, I'm great. I said, I can't believe that you're here. Oh, I like to do this stuff, you know, gets me out of the house, that kind of thing. So he signed a book for me uh, to, to rob with love from Quinton. And it, it's somewhere in this room. I don't know where it is, but it's something that I will treasure. Uh, just a really powerful moment for me as a gay man to meet this great icon. Simon Vowles would like to know, Who's your favourite support band that you took out on tour? Oh, there's so many. There's so many. I wouldn't know where to begin. I like to call them special guests rather than support bands. Anthrax, um, Testament. Uh, went out with Motorhead, with Maiden when they first kicked off, Def, Le Def Leppard when they kicked off. Uh, oh, I'm, I know I'm missing a load, aren't I? Uriah Heap recently. It's too, there's so many. They're all great friends, great friends. Pantera, weren't you, when you took them? Oh, Pantera, yeah, absolutely. We took Pantera to Europe for the first time after I met the guys in, um, in Toronto. And I said to the band, this, these, this, these guys here, they're going to be gigantic. Why don't we take them with us to Europe? And we did. 
They'd never left the country before. And they went on stage fearless night after night, you know, all, all around Europe and uh, the UK and crowd hadn't got a clue who they were. Is this, who are these got, you know, who are these guys? And they'd fire up and then be shocking all. And at the end of every show, they'd, they'd run the crowd over. So I've always, uh, always felt good about the fact that priests were there doing like all bands do. We all look after each other. We all give each other opportunities. How did priest fans take to you taking out uh, Steel Panther on tour, who obviously started off as a, a spoof metal band, basically? Yeah, I, I got a little bit of pushback initially for, for, for making that suggestion. I think they're a great band. I think they're really talented. I mean, Satchel is a good friend of mine. He was in the fight band. But I just thought, let's do something a little bit unusual. Let's just do something a little bit different. Because they write really good songs. They're great songs with really entertaining lyrics. And a um, little bit of a sim similar scenario. They'd go out on stage and people were initially were very dismissive of them. They'd already got a fan base here in America. Uh, but by the end of the night, everybody's roaring and laughing and, you know, horns up. And it's just a great experience. So they're a very, very special band. However you want to break it all down. There's only one. There's only one Steel Panther, and they they do it great. Yeah. Okay. And the last question from Lance Cook: When, when you can start play, when, when this plague is finally gone and the world can start turning again, is there any venue or festival that you're looking forward to playing to playing at particularly? Definitely want to come back to Bloodstock back back in the UK. That's a great festival. We should have been headlining this year, so we've got it all planned to go next year. That's a, that's a great festival because it's exclusively one style of music and, and I just like that idea. Um, so looking forward to doing that, looking forward to back, going back to Wacken and headlining and uh, Grass Pop, uh, Hellfest. God, I'm, I'm missing so many, but we're probably Sweden Rock if we're going back there again. It's all these amazing festivals. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's a great experience. A dear friend of mine, uh, the late great Morris Jones, whose wife died, lives next door to me. He, he was the originator of the Monsters of Rock, which became um, Download. And he was an innovator putting together these big festivals. So I always think about Morris when, we, uh, when we're doing something uh, locally back home. Okay, thanks, Rob. Thank you, Ian. Thanks so much. <laughs>